Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 46, the book of Matthew, chapter 12, the third continuation. Last week in Matthew chapter 12, we left off with this thorny issue of what blasphemy of the Holy Spirit amounts to. And the reason that it's important is because even Christ's death on the cross can't atone for it. Now I'm going to begin with the bottom line. If you are worried that you have really fouled up your walk with God and committed blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, described as the unforgivable sin, you probably haven't. The reason is that your relationship with God matters to you, or you wouldn't care about blasphemy. Now, when Jesus was speaking about blasphemy, it was directed at the Pharisees and the scribes, the Jewish synagogue religious leadership. It was to those who had knowledge of the Tanakh, the Old Testament and yet were so hard-hearted, so eager to protect their turf, they were willing to slander Yeshua, who spoke truth about the Torah and the prophets, and thus they tried to thwart the work of the Holy Spirit among the common people. A divine work to redeem and save them. Now, when people hear the Jewish leadership, know the Holy Scriptures, and still put up a wall against God's Messiah, they are more in peril than pagans who know nothing at all. And Yeshua's already given examples of this reality. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is not about some particularly egregious sin of omission or commission. It is about joining the opposition against God. We all sin, and we're going to continue to sin, even after we've accepted Yeshua as Lord and Savior, although we are to be cognizant of this great gift that's been given to us, and our obligation to follow the principles of the Law of Moses that show us what sin is. The sad fact is, that our fallen nature continues to exist within us, or at the very least, a powerful remnant of it. And it taints our thoughts and our behavior sometimes. See, the, th the, the sins that Jesus atoned for are not only the sins we committed before we were saved, but also those that will come after. It's not that this blessing gives us a license to sin and to not be concerned about it, but it does show us what a loving and long-suffering God we worship. Paul says this about the subject of sin, including what our attitude and our actions ought to be after we accept our Messiah in Romans 5, 19, uh, Romans 5, 19 through 6, 4. He says this, For just as through the obedience of the one man many were made sinners, also through the obedience of the other man many were made righteous. And the Torah came into the picture, so that the offense would proliferate, but where sin proliferated, grace proliferated even more. All this happened, so that just as sin ruled by means of death, so also grace might rule through causing people to be considered righteous, so that they might have eternal life through Yeshua the Messiah our Lord. So then are we to say, well then let's keep on sinning, so that there can be more grace. Heaven forbid, how can we who've died to sin still live in it? Don't you know that those of us who have been immersed into the Messiah Yeshua have been immersed into His death? 
through immersion into his death, we were buried with him. So that just as through the glory of the Father, the Messiah was raised from the dead, likewise we too might live a new life. Let's read a few more verses in Matthew chapter 12. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 12. We're going to read just verses 33 through 37. Matthew chapter 12, verses 33 through 37 today. If you make a tree good, its fruit will be good. If you make a tree bad, its fruit will be bad. For a tree is known by its fruit. You snakes, how can you who are evil say anything good? For the mouth speaks what overflows from the heart. The good person brings forth good things from his store of good. The evil person brings forth evil things from his store of evil. Moreover, I tell you this, on the day of judgment, people will have to give account for every careless word they have spoken. For by your own words you will be acquitted, and by your own words you will be condemned." What we have here is a few verses that form a, a, a unified thought, and so it adheres to a pattern. Now remember, this is not being directed to the crowd, but rather to, at the, the Pharisees and the scribes to whom Yeshua is, is giving a good dressing down for their corrupt spiritual leadership. He begins by employing a rather common illustration used in his era, that of a fruit tree and the fruit that it bears. He does this because the bulk of Jewish people especially in the Galilee, were country people. They were farmers or they were herders. Thus he states the obvious, even the logical. And the obvious is, good fruit can only come from a good tree. And by a good tree, he is meaning something that is healthy, viable, and pleasant, and it is doing what it's supposed to do. Bear fruit that's good for eating. Now, continuing with the obvious and the logical, Yeshua says that if the tree goes bad, so will the fruit become bad. That is, if the tree loses its health to disease or to infestation and therefore becomes unviable, then the fruit it bears necessarily loses its ple pleasantness and it becomes bitter or rotten. Now believe me, the Pharisees and the scribes got the, got the gist <laughs> that what Christ was saying was a repudiation of them personally. That is, at first these Pharisees and scribes were good fruit trees bearing good fruit, but over time they've gone bad. They've turned wicked. So the fruit they bear has also gone bad. It too has turned wicked. Now next, just to be sure there's no ambiguity, we have Christ exclaim, you snakes! He declares, you snakes! at these bad fruit trees standing before Him. I imagine it was all rather dramatic and unforeseen to those religious leaders and the crowds of common folk that were following. How can you who are evil say anything good?" continues Yeshua. Now notice how this statement is still tied to the fruit tree illustration. If a religious leader has gone bad, like a fruit tree has gone bad, it's impossible that he can say anything good because a bad tree can only produce bad fruit. See, now the context and reasons for Christ's barbed criticisms are that He is responding to the Pharisees and the scribes' false accusations that He did His exorcisms and healings by the power of Satan. Thus, Yeshua is saying that to speak slanderous falsehoods, 
evil things is to be evil. But then again, Yeshua says, why would this be surprising? These bad fruit trees are incapable of bearing anything good. These evil religious leaders are incapable of teaching and preaching anything but falsehoods. Evil. Now it's important that we take such words with a grain of salt. I think we we could say that Yeshua's words were somewhat overstated because He was speaking in the manner of conversation. That is, even the most wicked of the Pharisees and scribes no doubt held some correct doctrine, taught some correct things. Christ's strong comments see, is, is a pushback against them for lying by saying that He was in league with the devil instead of being in league with God. See, they were not only slandering the Son of God and so being deceptive and steering the Jewish people in the wrong direction, but they were also slandering the work of the Holy Spirit that is the power of God on earth to save. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. See, they were speaking these evil falsehoods from hearts that had become darkened because they established and held up man-made doctrines, Jewish laws, traditions of the elders, as though they were God's Word. And because they were arrogant and prideful and they believed that these Jewish common people in the crowd were, were theirs alone to teach and to have authority over, Yeshua exposed them for what they were, wolves in sheep's clothing. For the mouth speaks what overflows from the heart, says Jesus. That is, the evil things they said about Yeshua getting His power to exercise demons from the chief demon were spoken because it reflected the condition of their hearts or better, the condition of their corrupted minds. Now still continuing that same flow of thought, verse 35 is Christ saying that the good person brings forth good things from his store of good, but the evil person brings forth evil things from his store of evil. This is but another illustration of the obvious and the logical that good only produces good and evil only produces evil. I don't think I need to flesh this out any further. Christ has made His point. He was using multiple ways of saying the same thing, which was a habit of His, in order to create emphasis, to create understanding. He pulled no punches by publicly and explicitly declaring that these particular synagogue leaders were evil men through and through. And so what Ever instruction or declaration came from them is evil, and it ought not to be paid attention to or to be believed. But then comes the devastating bottom line. On Judgment Day, they are going to have to give an account to God of what they just accused Yeshua. And as a result, they, what they tried to teach these Jewish people, which is wrong, who witnessed it all, is something they're going to have to stand up for God in front of God for. Something which, if believed, would lead to their eternal destruction. Eternal destruction for these people whom Christ was soon going to give His life for. These folks look to their religious leaders for truth. That's not what they served up. So says Yeshua, the Father's verdict upon them can only be guilty as charged, and their sentence is the final death on Judgment Day. What's the source of our words? They come from our thoughts. What's the source of our thoughts? They come from our minds. 
Therefore, since our words and our thoughts and our minds are all organically tied together, the nature of who we are, whether it be evil or righteous, will be revealed by what comes out of our mouths, our words. Now, although the topic can be hard to grasp, there's been an ongoing debate throughout history, including among Jews and within the Christian faith, of whether it is our body, our flesh, that is inherently evil that causes us to sin, or is it our will that resides in our mind? Paul addressed this very subject in Romans 7, 14-25, and it's my view that he never reaches or proposes a firm conclusion. In fact, what he expresses is his exasperation over trying to understand this never-ending tug-of-war between good and evil that still exists within us, even as a passionate believer in Christ. The earliest church fathers struggled at not only understanding what Paul meant in that message, but what they felt to be true according to their human experience and in their trust in Messiah. Origen claimed that the problem of evil resided in the mind, not in the flesh. Chrysostom was firm that Paul did not mean to say that flesh is evil, nor did flesh wage a never-ending battle against the mind. You know, over my time as a Bible teacher, as God has been kind and full of grace to allow me to continue to grow in my understanding, my position on this matter has evolved, or perhaps a better way to say it, my position has become more nuanced, such that I cannot say that our physical bodies are inherently evil. Now, they are certainly corrupted in the sense that the introduction of sin into God's creation has caused these, these fleshly vessels to become weak and to deteriorate over time and eventually to die. But our tangible, physical flesh, this is not where the power of sin and evil reside in us. Rather, sin and evil reside in our souls and in our minds, wholly intangible things. Even words, what Christ is currently addressing, human speech, are intangible things. Words are just as invisible as the thoughts from which they sprang, just as a mind is invisible. One cannot reach out and touch spoken words. One cannot reach out and touch thoughts. Yeshua says that our words are what reveals our evil, for the mouth speaks what overflows from the heart, meaning the mind. And that on Judgment Day we will be found innocent or will be condemned by God according to our words because they reflect whether our minds are evil or good. That is, it reflects our spiritual condition. Now let's pause for a moment. What Yeshua is saying must be taking, taken in a far larger context. He does not mean that words we have said during our lives, our speech, is the sole determining factor that will be used on Judgment Day to determine our eternal future. And let's remember this scene. Yeshua is dealing with a particular matter with a particular group of Pharisees and scribes at a particular moment in time. He is condemning them for giving credit to Satan for the good deed that the power of God's Holy Spirit has done and chasing away a demon from a possessed person. That's what this is all about. Christ was not speaking the gospel message of salvation to them. He was not giving these Jewish leaders a detailed lesson on good and evil, nor how true righteousness is achieved. So his statement that it is our words that will lead to our 
acquittal or our conviction on Judgment Day do not represent the entire picture of what is going to be judged by God. However, just as we discussed regarding where that line is between slandering the person of Christ, something that can be forgiven, versus slandering the Holy Spirit, something that cannot be forgiven, there is also a line regarding what our spoken words indicate about our inner spiritual condition. Now, see, to a point, our words can demonstrate mere carelessness of our tongue or perhaps unguarded emotion or passion. But over that line, it points to an evil mind, an evil identity as far as God's concerned. Yeshua has just said that these particular Pharisees and scribes, not all of them, just those he was dealing with, have been exposed as evil because their words of slander have crossed over that line. The church father Chrysostom had this to say about our words. He said, Do you see how far the judge is from being vindictive? How favorable the account required? For it is not upon what someone else has spoken of you, but from what you yourself have spoken. From this will the judge give a sentence. This is the fairest of all procedures. It rests wholly with you to speak or not to speak. Let's move on, read a little bit more of Matthew chapter 12. Open your Bibles up again. Matthew chapter 12. And we're going to read from verse 38 to the end of the chapter. Matthew chapter 12, starting at verse 38. At this, some of the Torah teachers said, Rabbi, we want to see a miraculous sign from you. And he replied, A wicked and adulterous generation asked for a sign? No, none will be given to it but the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Yonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the depths of the earth. The people of Nineveh, that's Nineveh, will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn, them, and condemn it. For they turned from their sins to God when Jonah preached. But what is here now is greater than Jonah. The Queen of the South will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Shlomo, Solomon. But what is here now is greater than Solomon. Now when an unclean spirit comes out of a person, it travels through dry country, seeking rest and it doesn't find it. Then it says to itself, I will return to the house I left. And when it arrives, it finds the house standing empty, swept clean put in order. Then it goes and takes with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they come and live there. So that in the end, the person is worse off than he was before. This is how it will be for this wicked generation. He was still speaking to the crowd when his mother and brothers appeared outside asking to talk with him. But to the one who had informed him, he replied, Who is my mother? Who are my brothers? Pointing to his Talmudim, his disciples, he said, Look, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does what my Father in heaven wants, that person is my brother and sister and mother. Now, almost as though sloughing off Yeshua's condemnation of their words, these Pharisees and scribes, called Torah teachers, the complete Jewish Bible, respond by asking him for a sign. I mean, this is almost comical. I mean, one has to ask, how, after his astounding series of miracles of various kinds, could they ask for yet another one? The answer is that it is not a miracle, per se, that they are seeking. In fact, it is nothing specific they are asking for. Rather, they are saying, he needs to come up with something, a sign, 
that is a verification or an authentication of who he claims he is. Or perhaps it is to better define who he is. And remember, he has yet to say that he is the Messiah, even though his words have become heavier and heavier in their implication that he is divine, or at the least is closely associated with the divine in kind of a Moses-like way. What they are really more disputing is his authority that he openly asserts is greater than theirs. And his publicly stated reasoning for this controversial assertion is because Yeshua says He is Daniel's Son of Man and therefore He's God's agent on earth. So in the minds of Yeshua's opposition, what, what's a sign? A sign is something like an omen. An omen in the sky, a sign. This is what led the stargazers from the east to go in search of the newborn king of the Jews, the infant Yeshua. It's also something done that creates an identity or it validates a promise. For instance, the sign from God to Noah that never again would the world be destroyed by a flood is a rainbow. Something enduring and it can be visibly seen. The sign of following Abraham and his God is male circumcision of the flesh, something that is tangibly worn. The sign of following Moses and accepting the covenant given to Israel on Mount Sinai is observing the creation, seventh day Sabbath, something enduring that resides in the heart, in the mind. So essentially, there is no sign that Yeshua could give these particular Jewish religious leaders that they were going to accept. Now the single thing I can think of that, that they probably would have liked to see is for Yeshua to announce that He has just formed a militia, and that He is going to lead the Jews in rebellion against Rome, since that is what they expected God's Messiah would do. Now Yeshua's response to this request for a sign continues his incredulous denunciation of them. He says, a wicked and adulterous generation ask for a sign. Then says, none is going to be given. This statement once again stirs up memories of the past of Moses and the Exodus in Deuteronomy 135. Not a single one of these people, this whole evil generation, will see the good land I swore to give to your ancestors. ancestors. Deuteronomy 32.5, He, God, God is not corrupt, the defect is in His children, a crooked, a perverted generation. And in a later time of Israel's development, God speaks similarly through the prophet Jeremiah. In Jeremiah 3 9, the ease with which Israel prostituted herself defiled the land as she committed adultery with stones and with logs. Most of the book of Hosea is dedicated to an extensive reproval of Israel that uses marriage and adultery and prostitution to make the same point. See, the meaning in the Bible each time this thought of generational adultery is rolled out, including what Yeshua is saying against the, the synagogue leadership, is that this generation that is being confronted is unfaithful to God. Christ using the term adulteress continues this thread throughout the Bible that likens the relationship of God's worshipers to Yehovah as a marriage. Human marriage is a sacred union with God as the guarantor. And as people of faith, we must always keep that in mind, although today the government has intervened. It's redefined marriage for political purposes, removed it from the realm of the religious, and made it little more than a legalized financial arrangement. 
Therefore, from the biblical sense, to be adulterous is to come into union with someone or something other than with whom one is wed. Now, this doesn't have to be only a sexual union. It can be a union of identity. So in a sense, Yeshua has expanded His condemnation to a more broad group of people. He is branding Israel in general as an adulterous and evil generation. Now we have to be a little careful with this term generation. It's used in different ways in the Bible. In this case, it's not referring to the modern technical definition and use of the term. Rather, Jesus means all those who are living at the current time. So it's inclusive uh, inclusive of newborns to the extremely elderly. And yet it is by no means a term that means every last individual. It's a general term and it's being applied loosely. However, as the Torah so vividly teach, teaches, and boy, this is an important principle for the church. God evaluates both individuals and entire communities that can range from congregations all the way up to nations. That is, He judges both the overall condition of a community as well as the condition of individual members of that community. So an evil and adulterous community by no means indicates that every individual of that community is evil and adulterous. However, (laughs) the big however, should God pour out His wrath on that community, even the righteous individuals that form it are likely to be collateral damage. Therefore, in the book of Revelation, we read this bone-chilling warning. Revelation 18 verses 3 through 5 For all the nations have drunk of the wine of God's fury caused by her whoring. Yes, the kings of the earth went whoring with her, and from her unrestrained love of luxury, the world's businessmen have grown rich. Then I heard another voice out of heaven saying, My people, come out of her, so that you will not share in her sins, so that you will not be infected by her plagues. Because her sins are a sticky mass piled up to heaven. God has remembered her crimes. See, sometimes it seems impossible, or very nearly so, to come out of an evil and adulterous community. However, God is warning Israel in particular to leave the nations where they have gone, because the nations are about to receive His full fury. This has always been understood to me, that a faithful God-worshipper should detach and should leave whatever community one is part of if it is evil and adulterous, because even the most faithful are going to be affected as a consequence of that attachment. See, in our time as believers in Jesus, this perhaps Most applies to our congregations and to our personal associations. It falls to us, to us, to gauge whether the leadership and teaching of our congregational community is true to the Bible and therefore faithful to God, or if it reflects that congregation's man-made traditions and doctrines that have strayed from biblical ordinance and principle. And if it does, then we have a free will decision to make. Do we follow God's call for us to come out of it? Or do we put social connections, comfort, personal preferences above that? So in verses 39 and 40, Jesus tells the Pharisees and the scribes that He absolutely will not give them a sign. However, they will witness the sign of Jonah, which was that for three days and three nights, Jonah 
was in the belly of a sea monster. Therefore, Yeshua, the Son of Man, will be three nights, uh, three days and three nights in the belly of the earth. Jonah was sent quite unwillingly by God to prophesy to the Gentiles of the city of Nineveh. The prophecy was that if they did not turn from their adulterous and evil ways, God would destroy them. Jonah didn't want to go because he didn't want Nineveh to be delivered. He would just as soon to see them destroyed. Much to his surprise, the leaders of Nineveh listened to Jonah, heeded God's warning, repented, so God's fury was averted. Exactly what God wanted. Well, what happened to Jonah had never been taken as a sign by the Jewish people, but Christ just revealed it as one. Yet the undefined sign that the Pharisees demanded will not occur there on the spot, nor will it occur during, during Yeshua's lifetime. A sign will only happen upon His death and His resurrection, because His death and resurrection are the fulfillment of the sign of Jonah. A few decades later, Paul will confirm this as his interpretation of the event in Acts 2, 22-24. Men of Israel listened to this. Yeshua from Nazareth, from Nazareth, was a man demonstrated to you to have been from God by the powerful works and miracles and signs that God performed through Him in your presence. You yourselves know this. This man was arrested in accordance with God's predetermined plan and foreknowledge, and through the agency of persons not bound by the Torah, you nailed him up on a stake and killed him. But God has raised him up, has freed him from the suffering of death. It was impossible that death could keep its hold on him. In my teaching entitled, The Passover Problem Solved, I go into depth about the literal fulfillment of Jesus' prophecy about Himself as being the sign of Jonah. Nearly every biblical commentator will go to great lengths to explain away how Jesus didn't actually spend three days and three nights in the tomb. Or some go so far as to virtually redefine days and nights so that it comes out to three days and three nights. Others merely dismiss it and say it just doesn't really matter. Well, it does matter. It matters. Otherwise, how much else of the New Testament are we to spiritualize and marginalize away? Or as in this case, to keep man-made Easter doctrines alive? When we understand the Torah and we understand the biblical feasts, of which the feasts of unleavened bread, Passover, and first fruits were directly involved in the sequence of Yeshua's death and resurrection, then we can see how indeed he was in the tomb for a literal three days and three nights. I mean, you can go to TorahClass.com and insert the words, the Passover problem solved, into the search box, and you'll find the teaching on this. Well, in verse 41, continuing in his promise to fulfill the sign of Jonah, he says that the people of Nineveh, Gentiles, who are now God-fearing, will stand up at the judgment, meaning judgment day, and they will be witnesses against this evil generation as they too stand before the great judge. Why? Because these Gentiles turn from their sins and wickedness to God. This is the biblical meaning of repentance. When Jonah told them about God and that they had been wrong in their idol worship, that is, the people of Nineveh obeyed the Hebrew principle of Shema. Shema. They didn't merely passively listen to God's instructions, they heard, they believed. They actively carried it out. Luke says virtually the same thing in Luke 11, 32. 
And by the way, ancient Nineveh is modern Mosul, Iraq. One has to wonder because of the way biblical prophecies are fulfilled and, and they repeat sometimes more than once if Mosul, Iraq might not eventually become a center of Christ believing. Christ believing Arabs by the time of the Day of Judgment. Well, no one can say for certain. I, I sort of expect it. Well, Yeshua next says, rather cryptically, that what is here now is greater than Jonah. He can only be speaking of Himself. In this chapter, Christ has made the sign of Jonah as His own sign, and He has made Himself to be the son of David, which is Solomon, who was seen as, who was seen as a seer and as a fountain of wisdom. Now, Solomon and Jonah were two highly regarded figures within first century Judaism, and Yeshua says He's greater than both of them. But in another sense, He is complaining that while the Pharisees and the scribes accept both Solomon and Jonah as legitimate and highly, highly revered holy men, they don't accept Him even though these two and so many prophets from Israel's past, as well as Moses, spoke about Him. This contrast ties together with the irony that the Jewish prophet Jonah went to an unfaithful pagan city and the residents listened to his prophecy. They repented, they became faithful, but Israel's own prophets went to the people of Israel and they refused God's words and warnings. Thus says Christ, the pagan queen of the south will be yet another witness against unfaithful Israel on Judgment Day. This is referring to the pagan Queen of Sheba, who, hearing of Solomon's great wisdom, came to him and spent quite some time learning from him and returned home changed as a God-worshipper. So we can only imagine that despite all Yeshua is saying that is the truth, the Pharisees and the scribes, and soon the majority of Jews in Judea, became livid over Yeshua speaking of the inclusion of Gentiles having favor with Yehovah, God of Israel, without them first converting and becoming Jews. The fighting words that Jesus puts forth is that Gentiles might even be more accepting of Him than the Jews, which of course has turned out to be true. Now, verses 43 to 45 are admittedly challenging, so challenging that there are several different interpretations of them. Now, we don't have time to sort out the several of those that I think are off the mark, so I'm only going to go with what I conclude Jesus meant there. I will add that this is a story that combines parable, metaphor, and scriptural truth. He is also employing a language and terms and illustration that were understood within the Holy Land in the first century, but they're very challenging for us to write, try to reconstruct today. That said, here's what I think the meaning is based upon what we can know with help from the Torah. Now the unclean spirits he speaks about mean evil spirits, demons. And they are generally, those two terms are, are generally interchangeable. So the illustration or, or teaching begins with the scenario that through exorcism, a demon possessed person is released from its power. So the question then becomes where does this demon that has been kicked out go? Back in Matthew chapter 8, we read this. Matthew 8, 28-32, when Yeshua arrived at the other side of the lake in the Gadarenes territory, there came out of the burial caves two men controlled by demons, so violent, no one dared travel on that road. And they screamed, What do you want with us, Son of God? 
have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? Now, some distance from them a large herd of pigs was feeding, and the demons begged him, If you're going to drive us out, send us into that herd of pigs. All right, go, he told them. So they came out, went to the pigs, whereupon the entire herd rushed down the hillside into the lake and drowned. So to Jesus' way of thinking, and to the demons that were being driven out of these two men, they had to reside and exist somewhere else. They had to be in some tangible place. Now, since they were being driven out of humans, they were fine with residing in pigs as a not particularly desired alternative. But in Matthew 12, 43, Yeshua explains what happens to a demon when it has no place to reside. It wanders around in a dry country, seeking rest that is, a place to cease wandering and to settle down. What is a dry country? A desert wilderness. Now Jews believed that the Judean desert was the abode of a highly ranked demon named Azazel. Now this was more than legend. His name and that he lives in the desert wilderness is found in Leviticus. In Leviticus 16, 6-10 we read, Aharon, Aaron, is to present the bull for the sin offering which is for himself and make atonement for himself and his household. He is to take the two goats and place them before Adonai at the entrance to the tent of meeting. Then Aaron is to cast lots for the two goats, one lot for Adonai, the Lord, the other for Azazel. Aaron is to present the goat whose lot fell to Adonai and offer it as a sin offering. But the goat whose lot fell to Azazel is to be presented alive to Adonai to be used for making atonement over it by sending it away into the desert for Azazel. Now what we are reading about in Leviticus is called the scapegoat ceremony that's associated with Yom Kippur. The name of the desert demon, Azazel, plays a prominent role. It may even be that Azazel is yet another name for a manifestation of Satan. In the scapegoat ritual, two goats are sacrificed. One goat is killed by throwing it off of a cliff. Another is sent away into the wilderness, bearing the sins of Israel. It'll, it'll die out there. The idea seems to be to return sin from whence it came back to the sin's author, Satan. Apparently the dry desert wilderness is where demons who don't reside in some living creature are exiled, and they don't want to be there. So says Jesus, after wandering around the desert for a while, the dispossessed unclean spirit determines to return to his former human host. And when he returns, it turns out the space where he lived, the man's spirit or soul, is still vacant. What a funny way to think about it. A vacant soul. Why is it vacant? Because, spiritually speaking, Every human, without exception, is going to be inhabited by the Spirit of God or by the Spirit of Satan. And this formerly demon-possessed person, although happy to be rid of a demon, has foolishly not replaced that evil spirit that left his soul with God's Spirit. So, metaphorically speaking, the space remains vacant. And upon seeing the vacant space that he left some time ago, this demon goes and tells seven other dispossessed demons and wandering demons to come and join him. Come on, boys, let's go. And they're going to all take up residence inside this fellow. Thus making this formerly 
possessed, but then exercised, but now repossessed person far worse off than he was before, because now instead of but one, this poor man has eight demons living in him. So what's Jesus' point? It can only be a, continu a continuation of the condition of the souls and the destiny of these particular scribes and Pharisees he's been chiding. It is that, from Christ's perspective, these fellows must have had an unclean spirit in them at one time, but for some reason it left them. However, instead of them filling up the vacancy, their soul, with a spirit of good and truth, it was left empty. Now they are filled with evil eight times worse than it was before. And says Christ, this is how it's going to be for this whole evil generation. That is, this evil generation is not going to get better. It's going to get worse. Well, the final five verses of chapter 12 is Christ redefining what family is. Now, by no means is He disavowing His own mother and brothers. And by the way, here is one of the few places in which Jesus is said to have biological brothers from His biological mother. Mary. However, we cannot get away from the fact that as much of a natural familial bond that Jesus had with His biological family, the bond was even stronger with His spiritual family. So He points to His disciples and He says, these are My mothers and brothers. Now, see, mothers and brothers, the way it's used here, is a dramatic phrase, and it means family. This is my family. Now, let's look at this another way. The bond Yeshua had with His mother was biological and physical. The bond He had with His actual Father, God, was spiritual. The lesson? Spiritual bonds are tighter than physical bonds. But let us never think this operates only in a positive way. While Yeshua was saying that those who do His Father's will, and within the Father's will is that His Son, Yeshua, is accepted as the Father's agent, becomes His family resulting from a common spiritual bond with Him, it's also that one can create a spiritual family that's evil in nature by doing Satan's will. Therefore, you are bonding with Satan. Now, notice that while to start this passage he speaks of who is my mother and who are my brothers, he ends it with brother and sister and mother. This is important because he makes no distinction regarding gender when it comes to spiritual bonding with Him. Women are as equally welcome to be part of His spiritual family as are males. We'll begin Matthew chapter 13 next time.